0: All right, let's get started tonight. Um, each week, we go into this lesson, these lessons on the cross with the idea that we are going to explore something else, not necessarily new, but take another journey into the world of what the cross was trying to do. I don't think we can ever really get to the bottom of it. I don't know how much longer we will go. I knew this lesson was coming as of last week. I do not know for sure where if, if we will or where we will go if we do it another week. So I, I, I'm starting to land on these Tuesday nights with the idea that, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is it. Uh, and I'll say it tonight. Maybe this will be the last that we really focus on the cross as a subject. However, the, the focus on the cross never really ends. The reason we started this was because this, the church is the declaration of the wisdom of God to the world. What does the church have that the world needs? The message of the finished work of the cross. And so that's why I have picked up picked up this idea that the cross needs to be emphasized in this group and to our audience because it's what the church has that makes us unique is the message of a crucified Christ. I want a title tonight beyond the cross. And I don't want to comment on that title yet. I want to save that until I read my text. And I want to read just a few verses And I want to read one one set of verses from the front of Corinthians and another set from the back side of Corinthians. And I say that on purpose because at the front of a letter you're saying one thing and at the end of a letter you're saying another thing. You set a letter up, you say what you're going to say, and then you say goodbye. The first Corinthian letter is spectacular in a lot of ways. Probably the most popular is that he's got to correct his church. Corinth's got some problems. But it's also spectacular in the way that it opens versus the way that it closes. How it opens by focusing on one aspect of what we consider the gospel, and it closes by landing on another aspect of the gospel. And when you realize it's in the same letter by the same author, it almost leads you to believe that as Paul writes or speaks, because he's probably speaking his letter, it's conversational, he rounds out his theology a little bit. So, let's take them in order from the beginning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. The Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Simply put, focus on this as a thought. We preach Christ crucified. Paul uses the pronoun we, maybe pulling the Corinthian church into his sphere of influence. Maybe it's said something like this. What we do in this room is, and although I'm the only one actually speaking, we're saying that this is a proclamation from our room. So when Paul says we preach Christ crucified to the Corinthians, he's saying, the message that I preach is Christ crucified. The message you're familiar with is Christ crucified. The message of the gospel is a crucified Christ and then fast forward near the end of the Corinthian letter Paul writes probably the most theologically complete treatise on resurrection we have in the entire Bible and as he opens that treatise he says this in chapter 15 verse 3 I delivered to you first of all that which I also received my first message from the very top and I like to think from the top of this letter because we just read the top of the letter The first thing that I gave to you was Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's another way of saying Christ crucified. The first thing I told you was we preach Christ crucified. First thing I preach to you is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. I don't want to go down Paul's two rabbit trails here, but they're pretty obvious. There's scripture that support that Christ died for my sins. There's scripture that support Christ raised from the dead. When we say scripture, we're talking Old Testament. Paul didn't have New Testament. He only had Old Testament. So Paul says, I got it from the Lord Jesus and I present it to you that according to my own personal studies of our scriptures, our text, Christ died for our sins and Christ rose again the third day. And we could, tra- we could chase both of those rabbits and go through all the Old Testament scriptures to try to point to that. That's not the point of what I'm trying to do. I just want to show you that Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. And at the end of his letter, he goes, I preached that Christ was crucified for your sins, but I didn't stop there. I also preached that he, wrote, he went into the grave and that he rose again the third day, according to the scripture. And then as if, as he's working that out, out loud to the Corinthians, I told you guys at the beginning, Christ died for your sins. He went into the grave. He rose again the third day. It's like he has this epiphany that he lands on, that he builds his entire resurrection argument around. And it's this from verse 17. If Christ isn't risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Put them all together. We preach a crucified Jesus. I preach a Jesus crucified for your sins, who was buried and raised again on the third day. By the way, if he wasn't raised on the third day, who cares about your faith? Your sins aren't gone. So the connection that Paul makes is we preach Christ crucified, but we preach Christ resurrected because if we only preach Christ crucified and we don't preach Christ resurrected, who cares that you believe in a crucified Jesus? Because your sins aren't gone if he didn't come out of the grave. So in that little Corinthian letter, Paul connects the two major tenets of Passion Weekend. Good Friday and Easter morning. Jesus died, Jesus is resurrected. He doesn't just connect them, that was easy. If you knew history, you knew they connected. If you believe he died, he rose. That's a simple connection on 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 what we know as Passion Weekend. But he connects them theologically. Jesus dies. He dies for our sins as our sins. But if we just put him in the grave and we do not go on to see a resurrected Christ, if he didn't resurrect, who cares? And I know this is a bold way to say this, but I think this is what sounds, to me this is what it sounds like when Paul says it. If he just went into the ground and died for your sins, who cares what you believe? You're still a sinner. Because if all he did was die, so will you. Right? I mean... The wages of sin is death. If he met your death, if he met death by becoming your sin, then he met death the way you will. And so, big deal. All that really taught you to do was how to die. Didn't teach you that there's anything after that. But if he's resurrected, you're not still in your sins. Not if you believe on the resurrected Jesus. And this was important to Paul. This is why Paul rarely calls Jesus, Jesus. I'm not making, I'm going to make this point and I can't make it largely enough, so I'll just make it once. Paul rarely refers to him as Jesus or Jesus of Nazareth. He always refers to him as Christ. Because for Paul, the Jesus he knew was not Jesus that walked the shores of Galilee. The Jesus he knew was resurrected Jesus. He saw him in a vision. And so for him, there's nothing to believe on if, if you stop at the cross. There's more. Now, I want to take a time here before I read my next text. I want to share a few things from my own personal journey in regards to this title. I told you I would talk about the title in a moment, and that is Beyond the Cross. Let me share a little testimony of that. I come up in church. You know that story. You know the bulk of it. I'm a church lifer, okay? It's all I really know. I'm really a ministry lifer because come up in pastor's home, evangelist home, went into ministry young, preached, pastored, all that. My influences in the circle that I was in when I started to preach were gener- mostly Pentecostal charismatic of the non-denominational variety. Um, and so I was in a lot of those churches and a lot of kind of holdover Baptist churches from where I had grown up, and so there was this kind of this mixture of different styles and processes. And so I kind of was a mutt in my theology because I had a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I was kind of a mutt in my preaching style because I watched a little bit of this guy and a little bit of that guy. Of course, I think a lot of young preachers do. And as I sort of started to establish in preaching it, you kind of gravitate to a certain theology or, or maybe sometimes a very uncertain theology. But you, you kind of fall into a niche And in the preaching that I came up in, in that time, it was very cross-centric preaching. It was very, we preach Christ crucified. But it was not very resurrection-centric. And what I mean by that is they believed in the resurrection, but they only preached it at Easter. (laughs) And, and, And I don't mean they didn't ever mention it, In fact, they mentioned it kind of like you mentioned hallelujah or you mentioned the word amen. It was like a term more than it was the foundation of their doctrine. And so I started preaching that way, always preaching the cross, always preaching the cross. Be sure to feather in the word cross as you preach the message of the cross, take people to the place where they die, take them to the death of Jesus, show them the cross is the place where Jesus died for their sins. But we were even taught, don't overemphasize the resurrection. It wasn't like they just didn't talk about it. And so there was, it was just one of those under the, you know, sweep it under the rug things. No, it was blatantly taught to us. Don't preach too much about the resurrection because the resurrection is still mainly a future event. And unless you go to the cross, you're not getting there anyway. And that was so drilled into us as a theology that all you, when you took people to the cross, it was, is, it was as a faith experience to die to sin. And because of that, it was a faith experience you had to do over and over and over again and go back to dying to sin at that cross. And I literally heard the phrase, never try to take people beyond the cross. Because they're not they're not resurrected yet. They're going to resurrect because Jesus resurrected. But in the meantime, they need to keep going to the cross daily and dying to the old man, to sin. And this was a big one. To the sin nature. And their sin nature is beating up their, their spirit man because they're feeding their flesh. And we got into the two dogs analogy. I don't know if you ever heard the two dogs analogy, but boy, that was an illustration. We love to run that baby right up to invitation. You got two dogs in your, represented by two dogs. One's your sin nature and one's your, your divine nature. And those two things are fighting in there all the time. And whichever nature you feed the most is going to win. So if you're out here feeding your flesh all week, and boy, then you could list off all the flesh feeding activities you could come up with. And they ranged from movies to music to dress to language to drink to food to sex to, I mean, you, just, just, you could just run that and people shout and get all excited and just spot everyone's sin. And you could, you've been feeding that garbage. And then, and, and then over here you go, but if you'd feed your spirit man, and of course the spirit man almost invariably was fed at our church. That's the best place you could feed him is get in church and stop skipping and start paying your tithe and stuff. And it was always a bunch of stuff. If you were doing for the spirit side, he would get robust. And it was like you had this, this image of Jesus. And we literally, we actually kind of preached it this way when we got real bold is that it sort of empowered the Holy Spirit in you to beat up on your old sin, man. And what he was really doing was he was taking your old sin man and he was putting him on the cross again. And he was nailing all of your activities. And you could list them off again. If you missed any, you could throw them in there again. He was taking your activities and he was nailing it to his cross so that you could be free. And here's the catch 22. You never got to move past the cross. You never got to go beyond the cross because you never actually stopped sinning. And as long as you were still sinning, there was a part of you that needed crucified. And therefore, every service, we were starting all over again. And this is how I preached. So you were always getting, if it wasn't rededicated, you were always re-crucified. There was always a reason to get to the altar. You either need to get saved, you either need to get saved again, or you need to crucify your old flesh. And don't you act like you don't have any? And then you list off a bunch till you see somebody get guilty. Right? Hey guys, this is easy, low-hanging fruit preaching, and you don't even need to know the gospel. You just have to know how to peddle guilt, and shame, and condemnation, and never let people know that they're alive. Don't preach the resurrection. Don't go beyond the cross. Now, in defense of why they were doing that, is because they were trying to beat up sin. Their heart was actually in the place of we, we want people to live right. I want to live right. I don't want to do this before God. I don't want to embarrass my my calling. I don't want to embarrass the walk. And I really want to be strong in the faith. And so I want to get over this. How do we get over this? Crucify this afresh. Put this back on the cross and kill it. And what happened is that the cross was taught only as one thing. It was taught as death to sin The sins you were committing were dying on the cross, and the cross could never be used for anything else. It was never an allegory, it was never a metaphor. When Jesus said, Pick up your cross daily, we taught that what he meant was, Die every day. We didn't have any room for him to be saying, Pick up the biggest burden in your life and carry it, and I'll carry it with you. And because of that, we didn't preach to practical suffering in people's lives. We never talked about depression, we never talked about anxiety. We never talked about physical pain. We never talked about mental deficiencies. When we did, they were always spiritual problems that needed healed. Like if you had anxiety, it was because you hadn't cast your cares upon the Lord. If you were depressed, it was because you weren't focused on Jesus. If you had physical maladies, it was because you hadn't confessed your healing yet. We didn't have any room for there to just be bad stuff that happens to people in life that they need to hold the hand of Jesus while they walk through it because we only had one thing the cross was good for and that's killing your sins. And if that's the message, it's always easy to find a reason to preach it because people are always sinning. And so you could always just take people back to the cross, but you can't dare go beyond it because beyond the cross is where resurrected people live and resurrected people wouldn't be sinning, right? This is how we, this is how we thought resurrected people wouldn't sin. And since you're sinning, you're not resurrected. Now you're going to be resurrected. That's why when Easter rolled around, You'd preach the resurrection as an event that happened 2,000 years ago that's going to happen maybe 2,000 years from now. That's how we'd preach. 2,000 years ago, he rolled out of the ground. How many of you know that sometime, maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's in 2,000 years. You're going to come, your old body is going to come out of the ground in the name of Jesus and resurrect into his glory. And I, as a kid, was unimpressed with the resurrection because I thought, first of all, you've preached to me that when I die, I go to heaven. And then in 5,000 years, I get, a, I get this thing back in a renewed body? Why do I need it if I've been in heaven for 5,000 years? Why do I need that body that comes busting out of the ground? Why is resurrection a part of the message if what I really need is the cross? And so I was actually kind of ripe to drop right into that beyond the cross preaching or, or no beyond the cross preaching. Don't take them past there. Only at the cross is where these things, this is where we got to take our crowd. So that makes this next point very easy. If you were still sinning, then you hadn't died at the cross yet. Well, everybody was still sinning so none of you had really died at the cross however not everybody was sinning as much as everybody else so there were stages to which you were dying some of you were getting better at dying on that cross than were others and here's where it get really weird this is actually where i got exhausted this is why i had a grace revolution this was what drove me to that how did you crucify that that old stuff well any effort on your part was works Any effort on your part was works. So the only way to crucify it was to believe on the crucified one and have faith in him as your crucifixion. And that led you to confessing out loud and quoting scripture. It was sort of word of faith repackaged. Confess it out loud, quote scripture and believe. And if you didn't sin, then your faith was properly placed in the cross of Christ. If you sinned, then your faith was not properly placed in the cross of Christ. You were starting over again. And any effort on your part to stop sinning could be quickly, could quickly turn into works. And why it was so exhausting is because it gave an excuse for sin. It wasn't really you that did it, it was your old sin nature that did it. But if you'd put your faith properly in the cross of Jesus Christ, that old, you'd be crucified and you could you could then start to experience victory because we would say victory comes in putting all of your stuff in Christ at the cross and then living out that victory. But any time that my sin showed back up, it was evidence that I wasn't doing what I thought I was doing. Confused yet? Yeah. And it's an easy place to get people into that. Look, your problem is you just don't believe. And that's, that's, that's always been the, the, and I know I used this phrase earlier, but I'll use it again. It's always been sort of the low-hanging fruit of the I don't want to ask questions ministries. I don't want to answer questions ministries, which is don't ask me the hard questions. The reality is, is either if you've got questions, you don't, what's your problem? You don't believe it? Or two, you don't have enough faith. Don't come up here trying to get theory with me. You don't have enough faith. We can always push off what we didn't understand. Don't come up here arguing me about translation. Don't be coming up here quoting Greek you don't believe. What's wrong? You don't have enough faith? And what's wrong? You don't have enough faith became the catch-all answer to anything we want to deal with. What's wrong? Do not have enough faith? What's wrong? Don't you believe? And anything past that was beyond the cross. Focus on resurrection was impossible because we were still sinning. Resurrection was for later. Resurrection was a promise. Resurrection was not a reality. Look at Romans chapter six. Now, before we do, let me, let, me, let me say this. This is the last text I'm going to take you to tonight. I got some things to unpack. All right, I've already started, as you can tell. And I got some things to work through. This is the last text I'll take you to. Every other screen after this will be sort of musings and quotes and things. But the, it, it won't mean there's not things for you to look up. So there will even be some in there for you to grab hold of and, and, and work on on your own. But what I want to do is try to show... This same Paul that wrote, we preach Christ crucified, we preach Christ died, raised again. If he didn't raise again, you're still in your sins. That's Paul. That same Paul writes to the Romans what we often consider the great treatise of theology on justification and righteousness. I don't think Paul set out to write a treatise on justification and righteousness in Romans. I think, it, I think it's a rabbit he chases. I don't think the book's about that at all. But it's a really good rabbit trail and he stays on it for a while. And we've built so much of our ideas around what we know about righteousness or what we know about death to sin around what Paul says. What we ought to do is take it with the composite whole of what Paul teaches elsewhere uh, and realize that Paul, this is, big, this is something that could be said for every one of us. Paul is bigger than one sermon. And we tend to pigeonhole our heroes into the one thing they say that we really like. Um, Paul is way more than one sermon and he's difficult to pin down theologically sometimes, but we think it's easy because we just pull a verse here, a verse there, a verse everywhere, a verse, verse from Paul. And we go, look at what Paul believed. And I don't mean he didn't believe it. I just mean it's not all he believed, (laughs) but we do that a lot with people. People do that with me and I'm not unique. We do it with any preacher, but I'll get response from people. I heard you say this in a sermon. Is that what you believe? And I think, yeah, it's one of the things I believe. But, I mean, if you'd have watched, you know, two other sermons, you'd have got like seven other things I believe as well, as vehemently, maybe even more so than that little nugget that I believed in that one sermon. And so there's always more. And so part of what we'll do after this text is feather in some of that. Talk a little bit about how Paul had other ideas about what it meant. But let me show you a little bit about dying to sin and resurrection. Romans chapter 6, verse 10. The death that Jesus died, I'm inserting the word Jesus. We know that's what he's talking about. The death that Jesus died, he died to sin, and he died at once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Past tense, present tense. Past tense, Paul knew he died on the cross. Paul's trying to frame his death in theological terms. This is risky because he was a He was a carpenter from Nazareth who got killed by the Romans on a piece of wood, stripped of his clothes, and hung between two criminals. Are you sure you want to hold him up as having done something big theologically? Because on the surface, it looks like a criminal got killed. And so Paul takes the risk, which the early church did. They took the risk and they preached theology into the cross. And he says, I don't think he was just dying. He was actually dying a one-time death Look at, I don't, this gets lost on me. I've read this so many times, I almost look, overlook it. So just let's try to act like we haven't read it 10 million times. Imagine you've seen this for the first time to hear this. The death that Jesus died was actually a death to sin, and it happened one time, and it happened for the whole wide world. So when you hear it framed like that, and you don't, you're not reading ahead, and you're not reading pretext, you just hear that statement that ought to floor us. The death that he died, he died to sin one time for everybody. How many times have you sinned? Well, it's way more than once. And so Jesus is dying one time for the sins of everybody that had lived before him, everybody that was alive when he was alive, and everybody that would be born after he was gone. So we're in that verse. So Christ dies to sin one time for all of us, but the life he lives, he lives to God. I told you Paul was a resurrection guy. He's such a resurrection guy, he doesn't say the life he lived, he lived to God. That would have been pointing to the Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount. No, the life he lives, he lives to God. Paul's going, look, I know he's alive. I saw him. I met him. I'm only saved because of it. He died for Saul of Tarsus, but he lives for Paul. And, and so insert yourself there. He died for all I did wrong. He lives to God. Then 11 is incredible. Likewise, you also. Likewise, me also what? I haven't died on a cross. What are you talking about? Likewise, me also. Likewise, you also reckon yourself dead to sin. But reckon yourself alive to God in Jesus Christ. So you have a job to do. And the job is not to put you back on the cross every day. How many times did Jesus die? Once. Reckon yourself to have died how many times? The same amount as him. How many times is that? Once. Reckon, consider, count. Consider yourself dead to sin in the way you consider Jesus dead to sin. How many times did Jesus die to sin? Once. How many times did you die to sin? Once. When? When he did. When, when, when Paul opens that sh- this chapter by saying, when we were baptized into Christ, we were actually being baptized into his death. He goes, what you, what you now know that you may not have even understood then is when you said, hey, I believe on Jesus. When we took you under the water, we were taking you into the death of Christ and bringing you up into a brand new man and we don't keep dunking you because you have lust, filthy mouth, get drunk, watching bad movies, hanging out with the wrong crowd. And yet when you preach this, don't go beyond the cross, you got to live there. Redunking people in experiences and emotion and altar calls and repentance and forgiveness over and over and over again. Because if we stop there and we don't bring them up, this is why Paul said, if he didn't raise, you're still in your sins. Why? Why? Because what would happen if you took someone into the waters of baptism and you didn't bring them up? you kill them. And so Paul goes, if Jesus didn't come out of the grave, guess where you are? You're not alive. You're going to die right there. And that is part of our Christianity. I died there, but that's not our Christian. It's part of it. It's not all of it. The best part is not the going under. The best part is the raising up. And if we are dead in Christ, we are also alive into his newness of life. Or as Paul says, he lives to God, he's alive. And so the cross becomes the place I meet the end of my sin. But I don't stop sinning. I just meet the end of my sin. It's dead in Christ. I got, you go, how? I I don't believe that. Okay, fine. You don't have to. Verse 11 told you to do it, reckon yourself. See, that's your job. You want to know what you get to do? Reckon yourself dead to sin. I didn't say that if you reckon yourself dead to sin, you'll stop doing things wrong. That's where for years I was trapped in this preaching. Go, well, if you was doing it right, you wouldn't be sinning you're doing it right, you wouldn't be sinning. The reality is, is what I ought have been telling people is, your sins are as dead in Christ as a, de- as a dead man in the cemetery. Oh, I didn't say your actions, that you're not still sinning, I'm saying the effect of that sin, the condemnation. this is why when you get to Romans 8, two chapters later, Paul goes, therefore, if any man be in Christ, no, goes, therefore, there's no condemnation, rather, right. therefore, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, why? Because if we've went into the waters of baptism and we've come up in a newness of life, you can't be condemned because the old you's dead. But I still want to live right. And what I mean by live right oftentimes has to do with morality. What it ought to have to do with is I still want to live the God life on the earth. I want to live like Jesus. Because Paul said that's what we get to do. Likewise, you also, you don't just consider yourself dead to sin. Here's the best part. You get to consider yourself alive to God in Christ Jesus. Which is why a focus on Christ Jesus, the resurrected man, is where the believer's faith ought to be. Not a continuous going back to re-dying, but a continuous going back to the living Jesus. And this is why we got to preach Christ. So if you go, yeah, but Paul said we preach Christ crucified. Paul also said... If he be not risen, your faith is in vain. You are still in your sins. You see what I mean by here a verse, there a verse? Because you can go, this church, we preach Christ crucified. And then the same Paul 14 chapters later goes, you know, by the way, if that's all we preached, then we're all still in the water. And guess what happens when you leave a guy under the water? He's dead. (laughs) And none of us are alive to Christ. And you got to consider yourself dead to that in life. So you're going to have things that cross the theological plane in Paul's writing. Sometimes, and I just did a little bit of this in in Popper Bluff this weekend. We're going to put this sermon up this weekend. I did a sermon called Two Truths. Sometimes what appear to be contradictions are actually paradoxes. They are things that don't seem like they should exist in the same sentence, but they do. Um, Probably the best spiritual example would be we are both sinners and saints. Paul said, I am the chiefest of sinners. Saul didn't say that. Paul said it. He also said, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteous of God in Christ. So God made Jesus be my sin so I get to be Jesus' righteousness. Which one is it? Are you a sinner or are you his righteousness? They're not contradictions. It's a paradox. The correct answer is yes and yes. Yes, I'm both of those things. Yes. Circle the whole thing. Don't just circle one and run, build a church out of it. This is why our theology is transient. We're moving all the time. We don't camp out on a spot. There's a lot of things we incorporate into what we believe about him. And a lot of things can be true at the same time. And so, here's a thought. Dead to sin, alive to God. Consider this finished even if you're presented with evidence to the contrary. And what I mean is, even if you fail, it's going to look like you're not dead to sin because you failed. But reckon yourself dead even if you're presented with evidence to the contrary. You don't have to go to work to kill that old man. You need to realize that that old you is in Christ and start to live the life that is yours in that resurrection. Even if evidence is presented to the contrary, consider to finish work. Here's where I couldn't... This, this next that's what I have any room for because the cross was only for killing sin. Could never be an allegory. Could never mean anything else. You know, wasn't no such thing as carrying your cross up the hill or Simon participating in carrying the cross up the trail. But we're growing. And in my growth, this is what I would say, is that I still carry my cross. Oh, I know that my death is in Christ, but I still carry a cross. And, sometimes, and I put in parentheses the word burden. Because what you're really doing when you pick that load up and you put it on your shoulder and you walk up that hill is you're carrying a burden. You're carrying something bigger than you. And if you don't have one, you're lying to yourself. Or you're just you too lazy to pick it up. And I truly believe this now. You're either, you've either got an area in your life that you have suffered or you have an area in your life where you are suffering or you have an area in your life where you will suffer. And odds are, if you've never picked up a cross, a load, a burden, anything bigger than you, then there's probably a bunch of them laying on the ground of your life that you just refuse to pick up. And that's happening all the time. And sometimes people call that rest, and it's not rest. I just wrote this in the the Jonah book, or just edited this the other day. If you look from 30,000 foot, Jonah's asleep in the boat. If you look from 30,000 foot, Jesus is asleep in the boat. But they ain't sleeping for the same reason. And one is a storm of abdication and irresponsibility. And the other is a storm that needs rebuked. And there are two different things in the world. And so we pick up the cross because yes, you got burdens. So I still carry my cross, even though I know I'm dead to sin, do I still carry my cross? Yes, because two things are true at the same time that I know I'm in Christ, but yet I still have burdens and I pick them up. I'm aided in this journey by the Holy Spirit. That's why he walks, that's paracletos. He who walks alongside me. Why is he walking alongside you if you don't have nothing worth picking up? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You know what a yoke is? A yoke goes on the neck of one ox coupled with another one. So who's over here? Jesus said, I'm going to leave you orphans. I'm going to give you the paracletos. He's going to walk alongside you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So if you let me do the work, it'll be better. And so I carry it up a hill. I'm aided by the Holy Spirit. Here's another one. I still die to old habits. Here's a verse you can look up at home. Colossians 3, 5. Paul said, put to death the sins that are in your members. Fornication, uncleanliness, lust. He, he lists off a bunch of sins in Colossians 3. And leading into it, he said, I died and my life is hid with Christ and God. So therefore put to death. The sins that are in your body. Which one is it, Paul? Are you dead or are you putting to death? Circle them both. Because the truth is, is my death to sin is in Christ. But I got a bunch of junk that I'm carrying around that don't look like my Jesus. And some of them got to be laid down. And by putting to death, Paul doesn't say get re-crucified. Oh, guys, when you sin, it's because you're not really crucified. with Christ. No, he just said you're dead. He didn't tell you to re-die. He said you're dead in Christ. But... So there's going to be some stuff in your life that you lay down. That's the process of the Holy Spirit going, I want to take this away. And we start to lay those things down as we walk in Him. So I'm still dying to old habits. And how's that happen? Transformation. Transformation is not quick. Transformation is sometimes painfully slow. But as the Holy Spirit transforms me, some stuff I'm all excited about now I won't be excited about in a year. And I don't have to walk or go around the room or get, or email every listener and go, have you found that to be true? That you're not what you were a year ago? Because you know it's true. There's just stuff that's not the same about you. And yet I still, even though I know I am in his resurrection, I still anticipate resurrection. The difference now is that I don't anticipate it as an event 5,000 years from now where this old body comes popping up out of the ground because I was asleep for you know, five millennia waiting but I take Paul's 15th chapter of Corinthians serious, that the resurrection, resurrected man is a celestial man that looks nothing like a terrestrial man and that that resurrection is accessed in Christ. And so I've already started tasting of my resurrection. Now, the life of God in me. And I anticipate the fullness of my resurrection when the terrestrial takes on the celestial. And that's where Paul's going with that argument. All right, I'm going to... Here, here, here's, here's some thoughts, and I want to just slow work through, and I want to say this up front. I'm not trying to diss this theology, this evangelical theology. I'm just trying to show you that this is where we are with the cross. Most of us in this room, most people watching, this is how we view Christianity. Our traditional understanding of the cross is couched in terms of a sin debt owed to God. That's how most of us look at Christianity. Every, we'll say this, everybody in the world owes a sin debt to God. And God intervenes in the sin debt. And we outline it in evangelism this way. And I just used five. There's, there's probably a few more. I'm, ch- I'm kind of parsing and just trimming down a little bit. But here's some basics of our evangelicalism. Number one, God created man with free will. Okay, this is how we explain why some people do one thing and why other people do it. Again, I want to say this. I'll probably say this three times as I go through. I'm not cutting these down. I'm, showing, I'm just trying to show you that this is about all we've got room for in the church when it comes to the cross. But I'm also going to show you that it's about a thousand years old, okay? Which means that the early church had a different idea. I'm I'm gonna tell you that up front. The early church had a different idea. The early church fathers had a different idea, but here's where we have landed, see if it sounds familiar. Everybody's created with a free will. God lets you do whatever you want. Number two, what happened is that we broke God's law and because of that, all of us are underneath a debt. Adam and Eve broke God's law. Everybody in front of us broke God's law. You broke God's law. Because of that, there's a debt that man owes. If God is our creator and God gave us the law and we owe a debt, then who do you think we owe? Think about it again. God created all of us. God gave us law. We broke God's law. So who do we owe for what we've done? God. And because of that, most of our theology is wrapped up in, you owe God. This is how we preach to people. This is how it's easy to put them under guilt. You had a free will. You broke, you did what you wanted to do. You owe God, you owe God a debt. Number three, humanity is the one that sinned. Thus only a human can pay the debt. This is really popular. This is how we get to Jesus. Since people sinned, God can't just forgive it, a human's got to pay the price, so God became one of us. So God comes down and becomes a man so that the debt owed by all men could be paid by one man. Who's it owed to? God, which has Jesus paying God off. Starting to feel, starts to feel a little odd, doesn't it? The only reason it feels odd is because you've already been in introduced to alternate ways to view the cross. And because you've been introduced to alternate ways to view the cross, when you go back to this is the only way to view the cross, you start to go, hmm, I wonder if there could have been more. But we're going to stay on this track for a second, though. Let's stay here, because this is kind of what we've had for a while. Humanity sin, we need a human to pay the debt, God became a man. Number four, so Jesus died on the cross as payment. Payment to whom? An offended God. And he did it for the whole wide world. Jesus dies to pay. Who was the person offended? God. Who's the person need paid back? God. Who actually owed God? You. Me. Who paid it? Jesus. Why? Because he became all of us so that all of our sins go into Jesus. So Jesus pays God back for the debt that man owed to God. And then number five, in order to take a receipt on this payment, you got to accept Christ. Otherwise, your debt remains unpaid. So if you want in on the goods... If you want the receipt that proves you get in, if you want your ticket to heaven, take the receipt that Jesus provided for paying off his dad, and out of that theology we get God was angry, God abandoned his son at the cross, God killed Jesus, because if, God's, if we're in debt to God, then anything God says goes in regards to what the cross means, and in all of that, our hearts are in the right place. We really just want people to come to God. And and transactional salvation becomes more palatable because we're transactional people. It's why grace is not palatable in much of the church because grace isn't transactional enough. It's God just being good to you without you going through the prerequisite stuff that goes, I owe God something. And it's why when God is good to us, we always try to pay him back. Pay him back. Because we're transactional people this expression of the faith does not appear in complete writing until the 11th century. Almost a thousand years after the early church fathers, after the resurrection of Christ, almost a thousand years before we come up with, hey, here's what we're actually out here preaching. So what was going on for the first 10 centuries? What what did the early church believe that somehow got sort of slipped through the cracks? I didn't give you another one prior to this. Okay, let me read you this. Prior to this, the human problem was seen as a bondage to sin and the devil. And the cross and the resurrection were seen as victory over sin and the devil. This victory freed humanity to be what it was meant to be all along. The early Christian writers would say things like, the cross, quote-unquote, killed death. And they saw the finished work as liberation from the power of evil and the beginning of a brand new humanity. So, Since we didn't put that out, let me say it. I'll just slow walk it again. Prior to that 11th century, this was the writings of the early church. The human problem was... Not seen as a debt we owe God. It was seen as bondage to sin and bondage to the devil. And when God came and died on the cross, His cross and His resurrection was seen as His victory over the enemy, not as His payment to God. So what Jesus came to do was not pay God back. He came to defeat the darkness. That's the first thousand years of Christian preaching. Jesus didn't come to pay God back. Jesus came to defeat the devil. And this was how they preached it. He won. He did it. How? Do you know? Oh, if he defeated the devil, we wouldn't be sinning. And they would have said, no, you're wrong. You know he defeated the devil because he resurrected. The one that had the power of death and to hold you in death was the devil. And when Jesus rolled the stone away and came out, the devil had lost one. And if he could lose one, then he could lose all of them. And before Jesus, he couldn't lose any of them. Death won. So what happens in Christ is the early church preaches it this way. Not Jesus came to pay God off for your debt. They said Jesus came to destroy sin and the devil to introduce humanity to a brand new way of life, a way free from the fear of death. You could live boldly. You could live freely because you didn't have to fear tomorrow. Let me show you some writings of some of those early. Can you give me the Irenaeus quote? Second century, second century writer did most of his preaching in the south of France. Irenaeus was a third He Irenaeus is famous for being the last visible living chain between the disciples and the early church. Polycarp was Irenaeus' mentor. Polycarp was John's disciple. The revelator. The gospel of John. So, Irenaeus would have been next generation. So, so second century. He was actually born in like 130-ish. Listen to what he said. And he's talking about Jesus. He fought and he conquered. And through obedience he did away with disobedience completely. For he bound the strong man and set free the weak. And he endowed his own handiwork with salvation by destroying sin. Not by paying God back. Not by paying a debt he did not owe. I owe a debt I could not... No, he destroyed sin's authority. Line up with it. If he's dead to it, you're dead to it. Here's another Irenaeus quote. He caused man to cleave to and to become one with God. For unless man had overcome the enemy of man the enemy would not have been legitimately vanquished. I like that. And again, unless it had been God who had freely given his salvation, we could never have possessed it securely. Unless God had gave it free, you could never hold on to it. And that's why I couldn't go beyond the cross because I I was trying to hold on to it with my words and my faith and my actions and my stuff. Unless God gave it freely, I couldn't hold it securely. In Irenaeus' philosophy, in his theology, and I would dare say in the theology of the 10 centuries in front of the Middle Ages, in that theology, the cross can only be understood by the resurrection. Jesus isn't dying to pay God off. He's dying to enter into sin's dominion and to defeat it with his resurrection. Beyond the cross, there is the life of God. He goes down into what the Apostles' Creed tells us that he was... He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He was died. He was buried. He descended into the dead. On the third day, he rose again, and he ascended to the Father, and he seated at the right hand of the Father. Down, 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 down. Up, 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 up. And that's why we said last week, maybe that first chapter of Acts is that same Jesus you saw go into heaven will come again in like manner. As you see the ascended Jesus, He descends into us. I'd close with this thought. Fail to move on beyond the cross, you'll fail to live the resurrected life. In defense of those who still espouse that don't go beyond the cross, heart's in the right place. I get it. I would just encourage you to just take a look at the resurrection. Take a look at the theology of the resurrected man. Consider, just consider, that maybe, maybe, the cross is better framed, not as a payment to God. I didn't say you got to throw it out. If it helps you, praise God. Maybe the cross is better framed, not as a payment to an offended God, but as a victory over the forces of evil and sin. And in that theology, you need the resurrection, because in the other theology of God needed a payment, what's the resurrection do? God needed paid off. Jesus paid him at the cross. Who cares if he resurrects? You know what we did with the resurrection? We would say the resurrection was God's seal of approval on the cross. You know God accepted it because he raised him from the dead. And that led us to say, when we get all of that crucified there, we'll be ready to enter into resurrection. What if? What if? Instead, the cross is Jesus defeating the powers of sin. evil. In that theology, the resurrection explains the cross. In fact, in that theology, the cross needs the resurrection because if he doesn't resurrect, he didn't beat death. Death beat him. So if we want to preach to people that they can have life in Christ, we got to go to the cross, but we got to come out of the grave. We got to take people to Calvary. But we got to bring people out of the resurrection. Otherwise, you're just holding them under the water. But they need to come out. We can live in newness of life. Let's think about that as we pray, all right? And I don't tell you how to pray. But maybe one of the things you can consider is what your life could look like in Christ if you went beyond the cross. I didn't mean skip it. I don't mean act like it doesn't exist, but I mean you assumed that resurrection was not just the end game down the road, but the reality that you get to live out of now. What would that look like? And how might your framework, your theological framework need to shift or change to put you into that place? And ask the Holy Spirit if that's okay, because he can do that. Father, thank you for this word and for this time and For our friends that are here and for the many that will watch and listen, and I pray that we have said this in a way that leads people in a search to understand the resurrected Jesus. So that, Father, the cross, whatever it means to to everyone else, what it's begun to mean to me is the place that Jesus gave the ultimate victory over the things that are supposed to bind me. And that if I enter into him, I get to enter in not just to the place where he died, but to the place where he lives forevermore. And I want to live, man. I want to live. I know I got some stuff I need to mortify, to, to kill, like Colossians 3 says. I know I got a cross to bear. I got a load to carry. But I want to live. I want life and I want it more abundant. Because I believe it when you said you love the world so much that you gave your only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I don't have to be afraid of the perishing. I serve the one who's overcome death. In Jesus' name, amen.